Bonjour, I'm Janine Marsh, publisher and editor of the Good Life France magazine and website. I was born in London, but I now live in a beautiful part of northern France, the Seven Valleys, Pas de Calais, where I'm also an author, made to dogs, cats, chickens, ducks, geese, a rescue dove called Doris, who lives on a windowsill in our house at the moment as she has an injured wing. We're really hoping it gets better over time and we can get rid of her outside where she belongs. Doris has a neighbour on the windowsill, Charlie the rescue hedgehog. He was too skinny to survive winter outdoors, so he's been staying with us for four months to get through winter and put on some weight before we release him into the spring. When I'm not writing, travelling around France or being made to around 60 animals, I love chatting to you on this podcast where I tell you everything you want to know about France and more alongside my podcast partner, Olivier Geoffrey. Indeed, bonjour, I'm Olivier, Oli if you prefer. I was born uh, in Vendée, west of France, but I live in England now. I just came back from France. Actually, I was there for a week for uh, several family celebrations. My niece got her first baby and uh, he's so cute. My dad just reached uh, a milestone, he turned 80. Same for my father-in-law, actually, they are just one day apart. Uh, we also uh, celebrated my mum's birthday and my sister's birthday, all that in less than a week. And how we did it? Well, very simple, as it should be, with champagne, of course, wine, good food, at home and in bars and restaurants, all together. And that was in uh, Brittany, mostly, in a small um, historical town called Pontivy, a popular tourist uh, destination in the centre of Brittany, and in Nantes, where my parents and my sister live. It was really great. But uh, back to normal life now and to our podcast. So, Janine, what are we going to share with our listeners today? Well, I wish we could really share with everyone because today's episode will cover a topic that is on everyone's lips, French food, and in particular, historic French food. If you tuned into the last episode, you may know that I said we were talking about fashion this time, but we're saving that for later as we're hoping to have a very special guest join us for that episode. Instead, we're going to be going gaga for Gallic gastronomy. We'll be talking about some very special dishes and fascinating histories of French food. And at the end of this podcast, I guarantee you'll be wanting to nip off and make something delicious. A tart tatane, a flamme couche, pain perdu, cassoulet. In which case, I have a real treat for you. There are hundreds of recipes on the Good Life France website. Some are from my French friends and neighbours like 90-year-old Claudette, the wisest woman in the village and the best cake maker. Some are from the man who delivers my bread, lovely bread man. Some are from superb chefs of auberges, estaminets, bistros, brasseries, cafes and restaurants all over France. And some are from Michelin-starred chefs, la creme de la creme. So if you're feeling peckish at the end of this podcast, pop to thegoodlifefrance.com and peruse the menu of recipes there. The Good Life France podcast. Everything you want to know about France and more with Janine Marsh and Olivier Geoffrey. To start with, Oli, do you know what's the most popular dish in France? Uh, well, I think, uh, yes. If we talk about uh, kind of traditional food, I believe it's uh, bœuf bourguignon, which is uh, considered to be the national dish of France. It's delicious, really. <laughs> Beef cooked uh, slowly in fruity red wine, and uh, when it's ready, it's tender and soft, sticky and savory, and you soak oh. up the juices with a piece of baguette, obviously. That's the best part to me. It's, uh, as we say, miam miam. Oh, God, that sounds so good. Mm. My dad used to call it beef bourguignon. <laughs> and, uh, and yes, you are right. In France, this is 
if not the, then certainly one of the most favorite dishes for home cooks to prepare and for restaurant chefs to put on the menu. So the best bœuf bourguignon, I don't say it as well as Ollie, but bœuf bourguignon I've ever had was in Dijon in Burgundy. This is the birthplace of the dish. And the name is a bit of a giveaway. Anyway, I'm going to share some of the places where I've eaten these dishes that we're going to be talking about. They're not adverts at all. We're not being sponsored. They're just tips from a friend, me or Ollie. So in Dijon, I had bœuf bourguignon at uh, a place called Le Pré au Clac Brasserie par Georges Blanc in the Grand Main Square of Place de la Liberation. It's a, a hotel restaurant. It's on the corner. You can't miss it. It's got a lovely red awning and it's right in front of all the gorgeous fountains in the square. And I have to tell you, the dish there was seriously memorable. That sounds really nice indeed. Uh, no one knows how old the, the recipe of Boeuf Bourguignon is, uh, really. Probably hundreds of years, but uh, the first mention of it in a cookbook was in 1867. That's not wow. bad. French people argue about the best way to cook it. Of course we do. Do you marinate the beef in red wine the day before or not? Which type of beef is best? Which part of the beef is best? Everyone has their own way to cook it and everyone does it uh, a little different. Anne-Sophie Pic, the French chef owner of um, Free Michelin star Maison Pic, adds tendery spices. Yes, she does. Yves Cantbord of the Avant Comptoir du Marché restaurant in Paris adds uh, chocolate and orange zest. That's probably how you recognize a truly traditional recipe. Everybody can improvise from it. Oh, wow, that sounds so good. Chocolate and orange zest. Well, I, I mm -hmm. never even thought of that, but I'm definitely going to try it. And I'm hungry already, and we've only just started. Mm -hmm. I don't know how we're going to get through this without eating, Ollie. <laughs> and another famous stew of France that I want to talk about is cassoulet. I mean, I don't think we can talk about France without mentioning cassoulet anyway. Ah, le cassoulet, it's... Uh... It's a famous dish again, and uh, in parts of the south and southwest France as well, people are crazy about uh, cassoulet. People can fall out uh, over the recipe, you know. Some say goose, some say mutton, some say duck, some say breadcrumbs for the topping. Others say no breadcrumbs at all. Again, everyone has their own way of making it, and recipes are passed down through the generation, and it's really good. <laughs> I, I totally agree. It's a delicious dish. I really like the way my neighbour cooks it, Claudette. She cooks it, to me, the way it should be. Cassoulet is a rustic, robust French country stew. Typically, it includes white beans, pork and poultry. You can't really have a cassoulet without those three things. And it's been a favourite of the French for hundreds of years. Legend has it that the origins go back to the Hundred Years' War, which was 1337 to 1453. Not quite 100 years, but that's what we call it anyway. When during a siege in Castelnaudry in Languedoc, the inhabitants pooled their resources because they were basically running out of food and they just put everything together in a dish and they came up with this casserole. And the soldiers ate it and it's said that through eating this really delicious, robust dish, they found the strength to fight off the English invaders. I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, it's a good story. Yeah. The legend of cassoulet was born and it stayed with us forever since. But is this the true legend? Some say it was born in Toulouse. Some say it was born in Carcassonne. And very much like the ingredients where everyone has a difference of opinion, stories vary wildly from one area to another and families vary wildly as to what they put in their recipe. And everyone holds dear to the recipes that have been passed down through the generations. It's such a French thing, you know, passing on recipes. It's brilliant. 
even now to this day, 700 years later, restaurants can still make their name on the back of a delicious cassoulet. Ollie, do you know where you had your best cassoulet? Well, I have to say my mum's is best, as she might be listening, <laughs> although she'll be struggling a bit to understand what I'm talking about in English if I talk fast, so I'll do just that. <laughs> in a restaurant, uh, I think it will have to be in Carcassonne at the market. You know, there is a, a stall there where they sell cassoulet in big stone dishes to take home. It's so good. Do you know that? I do. I know exactly the one you mean. That market in Carcassonne is absolutely brilliant. And I agree. Their cassoulet at the market is totally delicious. Okay, so moving on from stews a little bit, let's go to something sweet and talk about tart tatan, which translate as apple tart. But I have to say, to call it that, apple tart feels almost insulting because yeah. it's seriously special. Imagine soft caramel coated apples kissed with the merest touch of cinnamon and blanketed by flaky, buttery puff pastry. Heaven on the lips. I really love it served warm with a nice blob of creme fraiche or even better, a scoop of cinnamon ice cream. The best that I've ever had was at a restaurant called O Trotas in Rickvia in Alsace, and it's run by a chef called Philip Obron. It's a tiny little place uh, right near the tower at the end of the main street in Rickvia. And believe me, it's a very small town, so you won't have trouble finding it. But I honestly have never before or since had tart tatan or homemade cinnamon ice cream like he makes it. It is superb. Legend has it that this delicious dish was created by a happy accident in the 1880s at the Hotel Tatan in La Motte Beuvron in France. It's about 100 miles south of Paris, 160 kilometers south of Paris. Two Tatan sisters were the owners and managers of the hotel. And Stephanie Tatan did most of the cooking. And then one day she was totally overworked. She started to make a traditional normal apple pie, but she left the apples cooking in the butter and the sugar for too long. And it was too late to start again. So she tried to rescue the dish by putting the puff pastry base on top of the apples. And then she quickly bunged it into the oven and cooked it the traditional way. What a genius idea, because when she turned the upside down and served it, it was Delicious. It's the tart tatan that we all know and love today. And it was a huge success immediately with guests. So she put it on the menu and everyone that went there used to talk about it and say, oh, she makes the best apple tart. It's really unusual, really an upside down apple tart. And the word spread and then chefs started making it. And to this day, we all absolutely love it. Sorry, I was having um, a virtual piece of tart tatin. <laughs> really good. <laughs> what about poulet Gaston Gérard as well? Another Burgundy special and uh, actually another happy accident. The recipe was created in 1930 by the wife of uh, the mayor of Dijon, Gaston Gérard. She was cooking for a very special guest, a famous gourmand of the time called Maurice Edmond Saillant who uh, everybody called uh, Kurnansky, a celebrated uh, writer of gastronomy in France and dubbed the Prince of Gastronomy, nothing less. Madame Gérard accidentally put too much paprika in the chicken dish she was cooking and to rectify it, she added creme fraîche and white wine and called it uh, Poulet Gaston Gérard. Kurnansky loved it and it's now a Dijon classic. That's how the best recipes are created, if you ask me. Yeah, that's such a good dish. I love that name, by the way, the Prince of Gastronomy. Do you think I could be the Princess of Gastronomy with all my, my recipes and cake photos? <laughs> yeah, Princess of Cheese. <laughs> princess of Cheese, that's me. And cakes <laughs> yes. and bread, croissants, wine. I mean, I could just go on. I, d I think I'd just stick with Princess of Gastronomy. 
I am a huge fan of this dish, partly because it's so easy to make. I think it's a, a really one. And I love the whole accidental gastronomy thing. It's amazing what classic great dishes can come out of just making a simple mistake and knowing enough about cuisine, about gastronomy, that you can just turn it around and make it into something wonderful. I think that we must talk crepe now. Absolutely. Specific- <laughs> Specifically, crepe Suzette. Mm-hmm. They are very thin pancakes, the French way. I know in America we have uh, quite fat pancakes, delicious, but in France we do them very thin. And the crepe Suzette are served with an orange sauce. You often see them being made in restaurants. And it's a really theatrical thing because um, they're set on fire before they're served to you. When, you know, if you go to a restaurant where they're doing it, you'll have a waiter standing by a table and have a little dish and a little oven in front of him. And then he pours in something and then whoosh, the flame just goes up in the air. It's a wonderful sight. And it's one of those cases where no one really agrees on who invented the recipe. And there are several different legends. I think my favourite one is that in 1896, a young pastry chef called Henri Charpentier, who was working at the Café de Paris in Monte Carlo, dropped alcohol on hot pancakes just as he was preparing to serve the Prince of Wales, fun-loving character, and the future King Edward VII. He wasn't able to save the pancakes having spilt the alcohol on them, so he served them anyway, with a plum, no doubt. And luckily for him, the dish was an absolute success. And the prince said to him, "Ooh, what is the name of this dessert? And the clever chef said, well, I invented it just for you, my lord. We call it pancake after you. We can call it the prince pancake. And the prince said, no, no, I think you should call it after the young woman who is dining with me, who was called Suzette. So that's how we get crepe Suzette. That's the best legend, I think. <laughs> it is, yeah. I love almost all the types of crepe, to be honest with you, Janine. And uh, crepe Suzette are amongst the most delicious, yes. But you know, we are doing desserts before the cheese course again. Careful there, Janine. That's not good at all. That's a no-no in France. You know it. Remember, always the cheese first. So let's talk about cheese a bit, please. You are so right. Always the cheese before the dessert. So we need to do a whole podcast episode on cheese stories. If you ever see the cheese aisles in French supermarkets, or better, go to a fromagerie or a cheese shop, run by affineurs who are people who are expert at maturing cheese. It is cheese heaven. Yeah, there are so many cheese um, stories. We'll be back here, as you said, with an episode. Uh, I'm sure we, we need to do that. But still, let, let's touch the subject a bit. And first, let's talk Roquefort. Oh, Roquefort. I love this stinky, creamy, crumbly used milk cheese. But sadly, I can't eat it. I'm allergic to it. It makes my tongue swell up, which is not a good look, I have to tell you. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Oh, no, that's really bad luck, Janine. <laughs> yes. Because it's one of the most delicious and one of the oldest cheeses of France. So, you know, you need to slather it on buttered bread. Yeah. Can you picture it? You can add a little bit of quince jelly too. So good. Or melt it with some cream and pour it over a frilled steak. I'm very hungry now. Shame you can't eat it. Really, Janine, really. A shame. Oh, you're, you're just so mean to me. I really, <laughs> lo- I really love this cheese. And yes, you are right. It is one of the oldest cheeses in France. More than a thousand years ago, Roquefort, or something very similar to it, was offered to the Emperor Charlemagne by the Bishop of Albi. The emperor thought the cheese had gone off, so he picked out all the blue-green veins with his knife, and the bishop said to him, no, no, you don't want to do that. They're the tastiest bits. So Charlemagne, he said, okay, I'll give it a go. And he enjoyed it so much 
that every year after that, he asked the bishop to send him two cartloads of that cheese. In 1924, Roquefort cheese became the first French foodstuff to enjoy the protection of an appellation, a qualification that indicates geographical origin and quality of a product and protects it so that other people can't steal the idea and make it theirs. It's that special. And talking about um, the Roquefort origin, uh, it comes from Roquefort-sur-Soulzon in Aveyron, obviously. You'll find it on the map east of Albi and northwest of uh, Montpellier, in a region where sheep farming have been around for about 3,000 years at least. And there's evidence that cheese has been made here for at least 6,000 years. It can only wow. be called Roquefort cheese if it comes from this place. It's very protected. That's such a long time. Yeah. And you know I said that I'm allergic to it. Do you know how it gets the green-blue bits on it? Uh, well, it's mould, right? It is mould. But the cheese doesn't just develop the mould. The cheesemakers add penicillium, rock 40. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but they have spirit spelt <laughs> spores to the cheese. Basically, that comes from mouldy bread and it creates penicillin. And I'm allergic to penicillin, so no rock for, for me. No. But it does make you wonder, who came up with the idea in the first place? Whoever thought, I know, let's stick a bit of mouldy old bread on the cheese. <laughs> well, uh, I did a bit of homework, so I can tell you if you want. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yeah, so there is a legend. Obviously, there is a legend, again, that a young shepherd was looking after his flock and uh, he spied a pretty shepherdess and uh, fell in love. So he left his sheep to woo her. And being a Frenchman, he made sure his lunch was going to be safe. So he put it in a cave, as we do, or at least uh, as we did uh, back in the day, I guess. And uh, what he had prepared <laughs> was curled on a piece of bread. But the shepherdess had wandered off. So he spent days looking for her, for nothing, and went back to the cave. And you guessed it, the cheese had gone all moldy in the damp cave. And Roquefort was born. There you go. I love that legend. <laughs> Imagine that. You're wandering amongst the hills looking for the love of your life. <laughs> left your sandwich <laughs> in a cave. <laughs> and then you go back and you discover Roquefort, which to this day is still made in chilly, damp caves. Amazing. I wouldn't recommend it, by the way. I would only buy Roquefort out of packets in case anyone's <laughs> thinking of putting some mouldy old bread on a bit of cheese. So let us end with a deliciously sweet classic. And it has quite a modern history, but that's, I think that's the thing about great French food. You know, the history doesn't have to be old. History is being made all the time by chefs and home cooks who create wonderful food. And one of the most fascinating history foods of modern days, fairly modern anyway, is the opera cake. Oh, yes. This is such a classic cake. You can find it in every uh, boulangerie in France and every baker has his own way to present this uh, chocolate delicacy. Tell us more, Jamie. It's one of my favourites, but it's actually quite a modern cake. It was invented only in 1955 when great French pastry chef Cyriac Gavion worked at the legendary Daléo shop in Paris. Daléo have been trading since 1682. It's such a long time. And they were suppliers to the court of Versailles, which is incredible to me that, you know, that they were still going. It was the perfect match when Gavion, who was a genius with patisserie and an artist who created the most amazing cakes and sugar decorations, and Deleo got together. I mean, it was a, it's just a marriage made in heaven. When he was inventing the opera cake, Gavion wanted to make something that he said, if you took one bite, would give a taste of the whole cake. 
He worked on this for months. He created layers of chocolate ganache and golden almond flavoured sponge. He soaked it in coffee syrup. He topped it with coffee butter cream and chocolate. That's it. I'm going to a boulangerie after we finish this podcast. I'm going now. Um, <laughs> bye. bye. <laughs> anyway, he came up with a wonderfully sophisticated cake and his wife said to him, you know what, Syriac, it reminds me of the Paris Opera House, Palais Garnier, because the rich, dark colour of the chocolate and the gold layers of the sponge soaked in coffee syrup were like the balconies, which are covered in gold. It's very Versailles, very bling, by the way. And the name stuck. They called it the Opera Cake. Absolutely amazing. I mean, when I think about this, it just makes me think of how many cakes have a fascinating history. There's Paris Brest, you know, which is named after a famous cycle race so that it looks like the wheel of a bike. There's the Trapezienne, which allegedly was created after Brigitte Bardot called it that. There's a, a cake that's called Le Digit de Charles Sank. It's a delicious cake. It's like a, a long sponge finger with jam, and it's named after the gouty finger of an emperor, but it tastes much better than it sounds. Uh, I reckon at some point, Ollie, we need to do a cake podcast as well. Oh, yes, that will be, I think, the yummiest podcast ever. Irresistible. But now <laughs> it's time for the Q&A section. We need to stop talking about food, or maybe not. Got a question about France? Well... Ask the experts. We reply to you in each episode. And we do it for free. Okay, Janine, what is today's question? Well, before I tell you the question, I just wanted to say thank you so much to everyone who's been listening to the podcast and sharing us and writing such lovely compliments and comments. Seriously, thank you so much. I got a lovely one this week on Facebook from a lady called Suze Ola. And she said, I've just binged on all 10 episodes oh, wow. of your podcast. <laughs> I know. She's keen. All, and she loved it. All 10 episodes in one day. Thank you so much, Suze. And thank, thank you. you, everyone. Yes, thank you so much. And now to the question. Guess what? It's a food related question. Oh, again. that's a surprise. This is from Stan Charter of Manchester, UK. And he said, this is so English, by the way, or so British. When I take a lunch break at work, it's usually 10 minutes to wolf down a sandwich. Then I just go back to work again. Do French people really take a two hour lunch break like I keep reading about? That's a long topic. How long do you have, Stan? <laughs> um, thank you for that question. It's, it's a great question. So for me, I, I'm French, yes, but I live in England now. So maybe I have changed uh, my habits a bit, but still... To me, lunch means uh, doing a break and a proper one. Having a sandwich uh, on my desk while working is definitely not an option. When uh, I work from home, for example, that means uh, I would leave my office uh, and go to the kitchen to prepare some food and then have it in the dining room, as you do. So I'm not sure it is a two-hour lunch, but it's definitely something of a ceremony around food, stopping what I do completely to really enjoy the moment. So maybe one hour, one hour and a half, yes. Well, I have to say, Stan and Ollie, as a Brit living in France, I uh, confess that I have not quite mastered the art of living well, which includes taking a two-hour lunch break. But my neighbours, I mean, they all absolutely take a two-hour break. You can set your watch by the farmers coming back from the fields, because I live in a very rural area. 
And most of the shops shut from 12 to 2 where I live and certainly all the banks and the municipal offices. I think John Claude, my neighbour and mentor, would be horrified if he knew that after 19 years of having a home in France, I still don't take two hours for lunch. So bad. I think things have changed a little bit over the last 10 years, though, because my local supermarket used to close for two hours from 12 to 2, but they stay open now. And in some ways, I think that's really a shame because we kind of all knew they were going to be closed and we were used to it and they got a nice lunch break. But I could also understand, you know, that other people on their lunch break might like to do some shopping rather than after work. So now we're used to them being open. I like that people can take their time to enjoy a good lunch. It's healthy and it's seriously civilised and it's so French. Stan, I encourage you, I urge you, break out of the mould. Make your lunch last longer, at least once in a while. Yeah, that's really nice. And I remember going to lunches with colleagues in, in Paris, and it was definitely about uh, going out of the office to a Parisian brasserie somewhere um, at the corner of the street and uh, having some yeah different time, maybe not a, a proper break because, you know, still working a bit with um, the mobile phone and stuff. But uh, yeah, definitely going out of the office and having uh, at least one hour lunch there. How to be French. Take a decent lunch. 101. This is the Good Life France podcast. Oh là là, le podcast The Good Life France. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to check out the recipes on thegoodlifefrance.com and sign up for the podcast for our free magazine, the weekly newsletter, and find me on social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as The Good Life France. And while you're cooking those dishes, have a listen to the great music that Olivier plays on parischanson.fr. And don't forget, food with a capital F is one of the things you need to know about if you want to be closer to France and to us French people, but no pressure there, really, not at all. We, we love our food, yes, but we equally love when people uh, uh, show interest in it. So bon appétit. It's time for me to say au revoir. And goodbye from me. Speak to you soon. The Good Life France podcast. Available on all podcast platforms. On thegoodlifefrance.com and on parischanson.fr.com.